Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario is set to release its fall economic statement next week. What do we think is going to be the main focus on this mini-budget? Well, we'll discuss that. A new TEP agency law is going to end bad working conditions that the Ontario Labour Minister has compared to modern-day slavery. Judy Fudge is a professor at the School of Labour Studies at McMaster University. She'll join us to talk about it. And a New York congressman is urging Canada to drop the COVID-19 travel test for Americans by November 8th. That's when the border opens once again. He'll join us to explain how this barrier is vital to his region's economy. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. There's lots going on at Queen's Park over the last couple of days. Of course, Doug Ford's comments about immigrants uh, that he will not stand down from, and that's still going to be an issue. Uh, some other pieces of legislation, including uh, news yesterday, that apparently we will be getting a mini-budget from the Ford government on November the 4th, just a few days from now. Uh, there's some interesting details that uh, the finance minister is talking about that he wants to include in this. So to get the the feedback on what's going on here, we're still pleased to welcome to the program Sandy Shaw. She is the MPP for Hamilton West, Ancaster, Dundas, the environment critic for the opposition. Actually, she's the former finance critic, too, so she knows what else she speaks when we start talking about the finances. Uh, Sandy, welcome to the show. Good to have you back with us today. Great to be here. Good morning, Bill. I, I got the overview and some of the talking points uh, from some of our sources in Global at uh, Queen's Park yesterday about uh, what Mr. Bethlen Falvey may be talking about, the finance minister. Uh, it's it's called a mini-budget. It sounds more to me like this is going to be a press release for the, the proposed Highway 413 that they want to build. This is all this was about. I mean, the cost of it, uh, he goes into great detail about how great this is going to be for the province. Uh, and you've got some pretty strong views on this. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is a government that seems to be all in with uh, building infrastructure development that isn't benefiting everyday Ontarians. You know, we're still just, in, you know, in the pandemic, coming out of the pandemic. And for this government to uh, pin their entire hopes on economic recovery on a, a, you know, on a $6 billion highway. I mean, this is a highway that goes through, you know, I think it's about 2,000 acres of farmland. Yeah. It cuts through waterways, paves over our green belt. Um, I think that he's talking about like $6 billion is just an estimate. So that's a real disappointment in uh, what we should be hearing from this government, which is about investments in, you know, public health, keeping our kids safe, you know, surgery backlog. Those are the kinds of things we'd want to hear about. Yeah, I, I just want those numbers because you brought them up, and I want our listeners to, to understand this. The proposed Highway 413, uh, you're right, 2,000 acres of farmland. It's going to cut through there. 85 waterways are going to be impacted. Uh, it's going to pave over 400 acres in the Greenbelt. We're not supposed to be touching the Greenbelt, but that's what this will do. And that's only one of the projects. The other one that apparently they're going to talk about is the proposed Bradford Bypass, uh, which is going to connect Highway 400 to Highway 404. Uh, that's going to cross 27 waterways. This is the Holland Marsh. Anybody who's driven up Highway 400 going north, like cottage country or whatever, understands that just past Highway 9 is one of the most beautiful sections of Ontario. As far as the eye can see, there's this beautiful, lush farmland called the Holland Marsh. Uh, they want to tear that up and put a highway through that. Uh, and this is one of the projects that they think is going to get on Ontario's economy going again. It's insane, isn't it? That we want to build a highway through, as you described, the most uh, productive, uh, you know, class one farmland, not in the province, I, I would hesitate to say in North America. So, you know, we call it the six-lane Holland Marsh Highway, um, and it, it just makes absolutely no sense to put it there unless you consider that this, this government is, is allowing development in and around Lake Simcoe without going through any uh, of the planning, typical planning processes, exempting them from, you know, uh, from any kind of zoning bylaws. 
and exempting the highway from any kind of an environmental assessment. And, you know, it's not just, you know, that some of the people that are concerned about this are farmers in the agricultural community. I mean, they have asked if, if the government's not going to do an environmental assessment, could they at least do an agricultural assessment to see how that's going to impact uh, that area? And this, this, um, this no pun, I guess pun intended, this government's just plowing ahead with it despite con- legitimate concerns about the impact this is going to, going to have. Well, I know that uh, some of the uh, Queen's Park uh, Press Corps uh, questioned uh, the minister about this, Minister Bethan Falvey about this. And uh, his quote here is, he says, we will go through the normal consultation to make sure that the highways and roads that we build are built to the benefit of all Ontarians. Uh, Those are interesting words, but Sandy, the track record here indicates that uh, uh, with the imposition of ministerial zoning orders, MZOs, that they just plow ahead and they do this without public consultation or they ignore the public consultation. So I, I, I... I wouldn't take that at, at face value. I'd be a little skeptical about uh, about the minister's comments. Uh, me too. And you know, when I'm in Queen's Park, I'm really restrained on the kinds of things I can say that aren't parliamentarian. But I would just say uh, that that's not true. What 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 uh, Minister Bethenfaldi is saying. I mean, they have exempted these projects from t- typical uh, oversight and environmental assessments. They've just done it. They, and you you you're absolutely right, Bill to identify these things called ministerial zoning orders, or MZOs. And what people need to understand about them is basically um, one minister can just decide that um, a, a municipalities' zoning bylaws, concerns about their environment don't matter, and they can, he can just allow this, these, these developments to go ahead. We saw it happen um, in Pickering, I, in the area actually with Minister Beth and Paul's own writing, where they, they were going to pave over a wetland to build an Amazon warehouse. It's now in Cambridge. They're issuing these MZOs to, to, um, to, for development that hasn't been gone through the, the proper process. So, you know, this government has a terrible track record, an abysmal track record when it comes to protecting the environment. And on, honestly, Bill, people say to me all the time, like, why does this government, you know, hate the environment so much or hate nature? And I, I said, it's not, my sense is that they don't hate it. They don't hate the environment. It just happens to be in the way of what they're trying to do, which is development at any cost that, again, benefits not us, but it, it benefits the fat cats, the, the, the d- developers, uh, the insiders, and as a matter of public record, the donors to the, to, uh, the PC government. And, you know, it's, it's sad that, it's our, um, it, that it is our environment that's going to be collateral damage. And it's sad that, you know, we see our, our young folks... Um, who are begging us to, to, to do better and to take it uh, to, uh, to protect the environment, to deal with the, the catastrophic impacts of, of the climate crisis. But we've got a government that's, you know, that's driving in the opposite direction, you know. Well, and just one final point on that. And, and by the way, I, the listeners to our program in, in Hamilton and London understand, I am not anti-highway. I mean, I, I drive a lot. We, we go up north a lot. Uh, but when you're going to build roads or maintain roads, it's got to be done with some environmental sensitivity. We're supposed to be smarter than we were uh, 35, 40 years ago. And, and uh, that's what I'm looking for here. Uh, I, I don't see the need for those highways. I certainly don't want to see a, a, you know, precious land like that destroyed. But uh, it's a debate you're going to have to have. And by the way, uh, the other day when they asked uh, the transport minister about this, uh, is this going to be a toll highway? Uh, they had no comment. Uh, so get ready for that. Uh, that may well be, you know, they're going to build this and then they're going to turn it over. and You're going to have to pay to use it just like we do on the 407. Uh, another point that I wanted to get to, and I don't know if you've heard this, but one of my sources at Queen's Park mentioned 
Uh, the, we as property owners need to get ready for this. Our property value assessments are given every couple of years, as you know, Sandy, as a, as a, a landowner or homeowner too. Uh, and apparently next year, 2022, they are due. I, my, my source tells me now that uh, the government has decided to hold back those property assessments until after the provincial election, uh, which I find to be somewhat problematic. Right. Well, you know, it's always interesting to see the, the sort of the, the new face that the government puts on just before an election. And, you know, we, we've seen a government that was cutting, you know, before the pandemic, continues to uh, cut, you know, $800 million came out of uh, our school budget. They, they're cutting public health units. Um, and so they're doing that. But people might not notice that, uh, even though, you know, we as critics want to raise the alarm for frontline folks that, the, that our schools, uh, you know, are being underfunded, our, 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 our hospitals, our long-term care, all underfunded. But, you know, when you see the bill come in for your increase in your, in your residential tax rate, you know who to blame it on. You know, at well, one and, point and we let's just, talk, just so our listeners tax. understand, the reason Pardon this me? is such an important number from impact, uh, this is how they determine how much property tax you're going to pay. It's a mathematical equation. Right. You know, whatever the municipality you live in, uh, the tax rate times the prop assessed value of your house. And we all know what's gone on with the price of houses in the last uh, couple of years right now. They've skyrocketed, which means that's going to have a negative impact. Well, it's going to be a pop. Your number's going to go up. That's all there is to it. And for the for them, I, this our impact, by the way, that does these assessments is supposed to be an independent body. Uh, it's not supposed to be run by the government. They're not supposed to get their marching orders from the government. Yet if the government's going to hold back these numbers until after the election because it's going to be bad news for homeowners, uh, I got a problem with that. That's manipulating the process. I agree completely, and you know we see, and, and these 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 the taxes are, are only going to go up because we see a government, the Ford government, doesn't invest in infrastructure. I mean, we had the Coots Paradise, you know, spill. We need investments in good green infrastructure. It, if the Ford government is not going to pay for that, it's only going to come from municipal taxpayers. And this is a government that walks around saying, you know, we're not going to cut, which they are, and we're not going to raise taxes. But what but they're going to do in this by sleight of hand. But your taxes will go up, you know, on your on your on your uh, residential tax bill, and that's still taxes. It's only you know, it's only one taxpayer pocket, whether however it comes out. And this is uh, a government that really seems to think that you know that folks can just uh, continue to bear these kinds of increases in their services and their taxes, but at the same time spend billions and billions of dollars on things like highways that aren't needed that that benefit uh, their you know, they're buddies, as we say. And so um, is there any, I, any I, t- go ahead. Yeah. Is there any talk here, though, Sandy, of, of some of the things they may include in this financial statement that Ontarians are looking for? You mentioned, for instance, affordable housing, uh, because every time the premier talks about this, it's always tied to, well, if the federal government does, then we might do some, too. And they've done that with affordable housing. He's also said he'll drop the, the, the provincial tax on gasoline. Not a bad idea, but he's going to wait until to see what the feds do. Uh, I mean, can we act independently here in Ontario? Or do we always have to play follow the leader? Well, that's what we've seen all through the pandemic is that this board government never got ahead of the pandemic, never did anything without pointing fingers at the federal level or even at the municipal level. And so, you know, the only leadership that we've seen this premier take is when it comes to things that benefit, you know, uh, himself and his insiders. And, you know, I, you're, you, if we take this directly to what we're seeing in Hamilton, I mean, this issue with the, the homelessness encampment, the, the, you know, let's connect that to the lack of investment in social housing from the provincial government. Let's connect that to cutting of the services and the programs that people rely on, you know, to, 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 to you know, keep themselves housed and keep themselves safe. And, and let's not, let's, let's really be critical about this government that says, 
we're going to build houses, you know, like we're talking about the urban boundary expansion. We're going to build these houses and that's going to produce uh, homelessness or that's going to create affordable homes. But there's no evidence. And there's no connection to that. And so it would be nice to see uh, a fall economic statement that really reflected people's real concerns and struggles right now. But unfortunately, you know, I don't think that's what we're going to see. We haven't seen it, you know, since day one from this government. So I don't know why we, we you know, should hold our breath and expect better now. Well, the concern I've got here is there's work to be done here. There's things that need to be discussed and debated in Queen's Park. And I'm looking at the calendar here. I mean, we're almost into November right now, which means that probably only a couple of weeks left until the House is going to rise for what they call their Christmas break. Uh, but they, you probably won't get back until sometime in, in February or March. And, and then the election's only a couple of months after that, which means there's not a whole lot of business going to get done here. Yeah, you're right. But unfortunately, the business that gets done is behind closed doors, you know, uh, in, in back rooms with the, with this government. Uh, they have completely done everything they can to eliminate the democratically elected uh, part of our province. And, you you know, Ford never shows up a question period. I mean, he never is there. Or if he's there, he's just for a few minutes. He delivers a prescripted line and he leaves. And so, you know, the, for the people of Ontario... For them to uh, really have a, a government that's held accountable, we need them to take this seriously. He needs to show up to work like all of us do and, and answer the, the tough questions. And, you know, um, I mean, he prorogued the House. We went on this long, extended summer break because he didn't, we don't know where the Premier was all, all summer long. He certainly wasn't doing the work of the people in the People's House, which is Queen's Park. And you're absolutely right. What they're doing is lining up not legislation, that will help people, that will make sure our public health units are made whole, our kids are in school safe. They're lining up legislation and messaging that's just basically campaigning for the, for the next provincial election. So, so as an opposition member and as a critic, how do you, how do you handle something like this? I mean, in, as the environmental critic, God knows your, your portfolio is pretty full of things you could be asking the minister and try to get some answers. Uh, how, do you, how do you nail them to the wall on these, and how do you get them to give answers to some of these questions? Well, first of all, Tylenol helps, <laughs> to be honest with you, when it's dealing with this government. But, you know, there's many ways that we can do it, um, which is, you know, in, in addition to questions and question periods, you know, trying to connect directly with, with the minister, the minister of environment. But they're pretty, they keep themselves pretty scarce. But what is really um, so important and has been so helpful is people in communities that have recognized the damage this government is doing, particularly when it comes to, you know, the environment in our, in our you know, our, our wetlands. And they have created all across the province, they're incredible, you know, uh, grassroots people that have just stepped up and said, you know what, this, this is enough drawing a line in the sand. I mean, the fact that, for example, Duffins Creek in, in, uh, in the Ajax Pickering area, where they were going to pave over a wetland, it was just a group of people that just decided, no, we're going to fight this and we're going to push back. And I met with them, you know, on the front lines and talked to them. And one woman, I said, oh, your, your activism is, is, so, is being so successful. And she said, oh, I'm not an activist. I'm just someone that cares about our community. And that's exactly what we need more of. You know, we need to understand that, um, for example, in Hamilton, we're concerned about this urban boundary expansion that will be such a huge, a huge uh, environmental uh, problem. All across Ontario, communities are organizing like this. And so for us to understand that it's not just here in Hamilton, that it's in, you know, it's in, it's in Cambridge, it's in Halton Hills, uh, it was in Pickering, 
communities um, are recognizing that this government is not going to be held accountable in the way that they were elected, so they are rolling up their sleeves and, and doing it uh, directly. And it's no secret that Ford doesn't want to be um, questioned on this. He doesn't show up to well, question period. He doesn't take many questions when he does have media events. And as we saw all summer long, he, you know, he avoids, he avoids uh, public scrutiny by basically, I mean. Well, you know, we're going to be watching closely. We're going to be watching very closely over whatever yeah. few remaining days there are in uh, question period over there. Sandy, as always, thanks so much for this. We've got to break it off You're here. Absolutely uh, stay well. We'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Okay. Great talking to you, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Sandy Shaw, the MPP for Hamilton West, Ancaster Dundas, and the environment critic for the opposition. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Ontario apparently is now set to introduce legislation that would require temp agencies and recruiters to be licensed. Labor Minister Monty McNaughton says there are more than 3,000 agencies in the province, and he says the vast majority of these operate ethically, but there are some bad actors. He says over the last couple of years, his ministry has focused inspections on some of these temporary agencies. Here's the minister. The underground activity they found makes millions of dollars off the backs of workers by not paying minimum wage, not paying holiday pay, and not paying overtime pay. And on and on it goes. And it's, it's I guess, a well-intentioned piece of legislation. Uh, but uh, the question I think a lot of people are asking is, what took you so long uh, to try to address what is a, a, an ongoing and a growing problem uh, for many, many years here, not just many, many months? Joining us to talk about uh, the proposed legislation uh, is uh, Judy Fudge. Uh, uh, professor Fudge is a professor with the School of Labor Studies at McMaster University. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Hi, Bill. Thanks. Please call me Judy. From here on in, it will be Judy. Okay. Uh, You've had a chance to look at the uh, the overview of some of the legislation here. And again, I'll ask you the question uh, that I would be asking Minister McNaughton had he been able to join us today. Uh, Why so long to to try to get this thing? This has been an ongoing problem. We've heard some horrific stories about abuse that have been going on for a number of years right now. Uh, I guess, you know, the the answer that, hey, it's better late than never, I I may hold some water, but not to the people that have been impacted by this. Yeah, I first started working on this issue in Ontario before I moved to BC and then England in the early 1990s when we started actually with a group, the Employment Standards Working Group, trying to get them to regulate employment agencies because it was clear that certain firms were using employment agencies to avoid liability for not paying minimum wage over time and holiday pay, and that many of these employment agencies were imposing fees, especially for migrant workers. So it's been going on a really long time, sadly, about 30 years. It's, uh, I, I know the minister used the term that he says it's akin to modern-day slavery. Uh, and, and when we hear some of the worst-case scenarios, Judy, it's, it's not far off, really. I mean, there have been some horrific stories about how these agencies operate, unlicensed agencies are operating, uh, you know, for to bring migrant workers in and, and, and part-time workers in like this and actually say, okay, but you have to pay me for this. I mean, we, we see these sorts of things on TV, you know, where they all get uh, shuffled in here on, in, you know, in, in the backs of trucks and things of this nature. I mean, this is, this is in the 21st century, it's, it's mind-boggling that this sort of thing still goes on. It is, and there are really, really egregious cases. And we had an example just a couple of years ago where um, migrant workers from Mexico were brought in illegally and huge fees were imposed on them and they worked in dreadful conditions. But I'm always worried when people start talking about 
modern slavery and labor trafficking. Because when I was working in the United Kingdom between 2013 and 2018, the government there said, we're going to tackle these kinds of problems. And what they did, in fact, was deregulate the rest of the labor market. So they focused So they brought everybody down to that level. What they did is they, they said, we're going to focus on the absolute worst stuff. And then, in fact, what they did is they rolled back all sorts of labor protections. And I worry that this is kind of what's going on here. I'm really pleased to see them deal with problematic employment agencies. It's not only a problem for migrant workers, it's a huge problem for regular workers. Think of Sierra Bakery. Four people have died there since 1999, and all were employed through employment agencies. And all of these employment agencies really just were post office boxes. And part of the reason that the bakery used these employment agencies is that these employment agencies don't have to pay the same kind of workplace in safety and insurance premiums. So, and they're not training properly. So the problem is actually really deeply embedded here in Ontario. Toronto Star Investigation, you've seen these, Judy, but for the sake of our listeners, uh, has uh, found that uh, the agency workers in blue-collar jobs twice as likely as their directly hired counterparts to be injured at work. And, and as you mentioned, if that injury, God forbid, should occur, uh, they don't have coverage. Uh, there's no insurance, there's no paid days off, none of that stuff. So they're basically left high and dry. Yes, and I don't, I don't see anything in the proposal. It's a really funny press release. I've gone through it. It sounds like there's good intent, but I'm always worried when someone makes a lot of noise about promising something and there's no details. I used to teach labor law, and I still teach labor law, but in professional law schools. And one thing that any labor and employment lawyer knows is the devil's in the details. And I just want to say, what are the details? So. I think it's really important to license employment agencies, and I think it's really important to require them to pay a security fee so that if they're found not to have paid workers, there's some redress, because right now there isn't. They're undercapitalized, and what happens as soon as the worker brings a claim, the employment agency declares bankruptcy and then phoenixes up as a new employment agency, and the workers get no money. So having some sort of bond is critical. But the bond could be $5,000, as it is in some provinces. It could be $25,000. And the minister himself said he found $3.3 million of unpaid wages just in the past year, unpaid by employment agencies. You're going to need pretty hefty bonds to cover that. And the point's well taken. I know the minister did say, yeah, we're going to crack down on inspections. Uh, and you're right, that is part of the, the proposal here, too, that uh, uh, they want to make employers, recruiters, and agencies jointly liable for workplace standards, including injuries. Uh, but if you can't find them, Judy, you can't charge them. 
and and a lot of these, like you say, are phantom companies. And we've seen this happen in the past uh, with other agencies too. As you say, they dissolve the company. It's not ABC Employment anymore. Uh, but a week later, those same people start another company under a different name. And legally, you can't touch them. Well, one thing that Manitoba did, and it's quite uh, restricted. It only applies to agencies that hire temporary migrant workers. So it doesn't protect people who are permanent residents or citizens. Is they said, look, you companies, you decide which employment agency you're going to hire. You have a due diligence to ensure that you don't hire someone who's going to rip off the workers. And if you don't make these kinds of good business decisions, you're in fact liable. So they put the onus on the businesses who use employment agencies to actually cover the unpaid wages. So that would give them an incentive to ensure that they're only hiring scrupulous firms. And that's a really good technique that's been used in other countries. So I would strongly urge the minister to think of doing that. You know, previous governments have tried to address this. And, and you know, the, the previous Liberal government, Kathleen Wynne, actually did pass legislation uh, that talked about some reforms, including uh, mandating equal pay for temporary and permanent employees doing the same work, as you had just talked about. Uh, the problem is, as soon as Doug Ford got elected, uh, they rescinded that legislation, said we're not doing that anymore. Uh, and they also, of course, we know because it's well documented now, too, of course, they uh, they also rescinded the minimum wage hikes that were supposed to be paid and sick day entitlements uh, for workers. He said, no, you're not doing that. So uh, there's an argument to be made here, Judy, that these guys were part of the problem, not part of the solution. It was really disappointing. I returned to Ontario in 2018 thinking, oh, finally, these laws that we've been asking for for vulnerable workers since the early 1990s are in place. And then, of course, they were ripped up. It's not only that the government got rid of equal pay for part-time workers or equal pay for agency workers, which applies in 27 European countries and hasn't bankrupted them, but they even got rid of the obligation for employers to post a notice of employees' rights in the workplace. And this is the same government that, of course, forced you know, gas pumps to put up stickers. So you're just kind of going, what's going on here, people? Well, there's a credibility issue here, and that's what I think is, is somewhat concerning. There's a larger picture here, though, Judy, and you touched on it a minute ago. Uh, and that's the very fact that these workers and these, these companies are starting to thrive. Uh, and it's because there's a, a move afoot here, and I, I guess the pandemic may be part of it, I don't know, to simply say we're not hiring people full-time. We're going to go to these agencies. We're going to hire part-time people uh, as of now until this legislation is actually introduced and passed. And then, you know, as you mentioned, the devil will be in the details. But oftentimes they can pay them below minimum wage uh, with no benefits at all, no sick days. If they were injured, they're, they're gone. That's all there is to it. Uh, and where is the discussion about uh, talking to these companies that say, listen, this is not the way to run your business. It, it, it does not have a positive impact on your bottom line, and it's actually hurting Ontario's workforce so that, you know, instead of creating jobs, which is what every government promises they're going to do, they're basically encouraging these companies to not create full-time jobs and to simply lean on these agencies. I think that's really a good point, Bill. In fact, one of the depressing things for me is when I teach in labor studies, many of my students, in fact, are hired through employment agencies 
and they work in small manufacturing firms or in food processing firms. And the people they work beside are paid more money and get benefits. And it's actually really dispiriting for young people that their first experience in the labor market is to be treated quite badly. And they know that. And I think it has to do a lot with how we think about the future. If, you know, people who are going to university are being treated like this in their jobs while they're trying to earn money during the summer or earn money while they're going to school, it really just gives a really bad sense. And it creates real problems for getting people engaged and thinking well about, you know, their country, their province, other people. So I do think that these kind of low road strategies have a really, really bad effect in the long run. I mean, you know, when I was going through school, and this is quite a few years ago now, Judy, but I mean, I worked in a grocery store part-time, you know, to, to get the money together for school and things of this nature, and stocking shelves. I mean, you know, work night shifts and go home and get showered and go to school for the day. I mean, it was it was what we had to do back in those days. But I'm working alongside a guy who was full-time, and that your point's absolutely bang on. Uh, we're doing the same job. As a matter of fact, we both worked for the company for the same amount of time, but he's making about $2 an hour more than I am just because he was quote-unquote full-time. I'm doing the same work. And it's it's the, the debate we've already had about inequity for pay between gender, but it's going on uh, with not just a gender lens to this. It's happening all the time right now. And uh, when the minister was asked about that, he says, well, the legislation is going to address that. Well, again, that's a, it's an empty promise until there's some specifics in this. And it's it's an ongoing problem right now. And as we've had this discussion over the last couple of months now about our economic recovery after the pandemic, issues like this have to be addressed. I think you're really right, because what we know is that people who were in precarious and not very good jobs bore a real brunt of problems during COVID. They were more likely to catch it. They were more likely to become impecunious, lose their housing. So in terms of building a resilient workforce, you really need to think about the kinds of entry-level jobs that you're providing people. And for part-time work and casual work, they're going to be our workers of the future, and they are working. You know, many people are working full-time, have been in the labor market a long time. Think of personal service workers who are only hired through employment agencies. So you really don't want to live in a two-tier society. It's not a good thing. There's one of the issues here that I wanted you to maybe explain to our listeners. It's called wage theft, and it's something that the minister did refer to. And it's basically whatever pay you're getting there, and it may or may not be minimum wage, is oftentimes these agencies or sometimes even the company will withhold this and say, this is the fee that you had to pay to get this job, uh, which I find incredulous. But it, it's it's going on now. It's, it's happening today. Yeah, it's illegal to require employees to pay a fee in order to keep or to get a job, it is being done. Sometimes employment agencies say, well, we're not charging them a fee to get a job. We're charging them this big fee to help them with their curriculum vitae, their CV. So this is a real problem. That's one form of wage theft is illegal fees. Another problem, and we know this is a huge problem, is that employers aren't, and employment agencies aren't paying holiday pay 
nor are they paying overtime. And all those kinds of illegal deductions are called wage theft. Right? And, and I know, saying, I know. Go ahead. Go ahead, Judy. Sorry. Oh, they're saying, oh, you serve alcohol all the time. So you get the lower minimum wage. And you hardly are ever serving alcohol. And so those are all ways of kind of needling away. And we're talking about a minimum wage that isn't $15 an hour yet. Yeah. Well, I've heard those stories from people that are doing working in those facilities, too, that are serving. Uh, and it's the same thing. I mean, they say we, they, they justify paying them a low wage because they say, well, you can make it up in tips. Uh, but many of those same age, uh, companies that, that enforce that uh, basically take a, 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 of all the tip money from a night, they take a percentage of it for the for the, the owner of the building. And I figured this is they, they're getting well, they're getting screwed. I mean, let's get right down to brass tacks. And, and I know I'm going to get emails and phone calls about this. Not every agency is like this. We get that. There are some people that are scrupulous. Uh, and do follow the details, and they're to be applauded for that. But uh, there are too many that are, are skirting the issue right now. Licensing has got to be a big part of this. But it, as, as we said about with long-term care facilities, and we've been talking about this, Judy, for God knows how many years now, uh, rules and licensing are only as good as enforcement. And if the, uh, the province is not going to enforce this with inspections and fines for the people that are, are transgressing this, this is useless. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point, that, you know, the devil of law is in its details, and then the second issue is, is it basically enforced? Because if you're relying on people to enforce it, they really don't know their rights. They're not, as I said, employers aren't even required to post a notice of your basic rights in the workplace, right? So it really is kind of downloading all of these things. And you have to kind of wonder if employment agencies are actually depending so much on this pushing people down, how viable is this as a kind of economic uh, business plan? So I'm glad to see that good agencies are calling out the bad agencies. I'm sort of surprised it's taken them so long to do it considering that we have been identifying these problems for, you know, a quarter of a century. Well, and it's it's created a, a, a what we call the working poor, and there's other phrases, I guess, that we could use, but those are the ones that can't afford housing. Those are the ones that are having problems uh, making ends meet uh, from paycheck to paycheck, whatever that paycheck might be. And, you know, if we want to talk about economic recovery, we're going to have to address that part of it. And, and there's got to be some discussion about that. And, and I know there's some side issues about, you know, minimum wage and, and living wage and things of this nature that are all supposedly tied into this. Uh, I guess we're going to have to wait until the legislation is actually introduced to find out just how extensive or not extensive this is going to be. But, uh, Judy, I wanted to thank you for jumping in today and at least giving us a, a discussion and a couple of points on, on what we think are going to be some important issues that need to be discussed. Thanks so much for this. Thank you, Bill. Have a good day. You too. Professor Judy Fudge, uh, School of Labor Studies at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, November 8th is the date that the uh, Biden administration has uh, circled on the calendar and said that's when the uh, land border will open again between Canada and the U.S. And uh, for uh, those of us in southern Ontario and even our London listeners, of course, who want to pop down and uh, go over the Windsor-Detroit border or Sarnia, whatever the case might be, uh, it's welcome news because uh, there's uh, no border really between Western New York and, and Michigan and, and Canada and Ontario. Uh, this is one big happy family. I mean, so many of us have relatives on each side of the border. Uh, we love to go shopping. We love to go to ball games or hockey games or whatever the case might be. 
And uh, that's been verboten, of course, for the last little while. Uh, it took a lot of convincing, I guess, to get the Biden administration to move on this. And one of the people who was uh, at the front of that uh, is our next guest, Congressman Brian Higgins, is a representative of the 26th District of New York. That's the Buffalo area. Uh, and he, he was a, a loud and consistent voice uh, for uh, moving ahead and, and getting this border open. Uh, Congressman, first and foremost, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to finally meet you and have you on the program today. I'm happy to be with you. Thanks. Uh, as, as we were just saying in the, in the uh, preamble here, there's a, there's a great affinity and, a, and a, 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 a mutual, I think, love of, of you know, Canadians and Americans, especially this close. Uh, I've spent some time down in Niagara. I've got relatives in Buffalo. My, my late uncle was a reporter for the Buffalo Evening News for a while. And, and you know, so this, this connection here that's been broken because of COVID uh, was problematic from an emotional standpoint for many of us. But as you pointed out so rightly, the economic consequences of closing this border down have been very problematic as well, haven't they? Clearly, uh, just, you know, pre-pandemic in 2019, 21 million Canadians visited the United States and spent almost $21 billion. That's $1.75 billion every month. Uh, and all of that, most of that was lost uh, during the pandemic. And as you stated, uh, Americans love Canada and Canadians. And uh, there's a great history there. I was a kid that grew up in Buffalo and spent most of my summers at Bay Beach in Crystal Beach, Ontario. I played hockey up in Canada. And the reason I bring that up is my personal uh, circumstance was not unique. That's just what people in Buffalo and Western New York did. They rented cottages and uh, spent time up in, in Canada. And, and Canadians enjoy Ellicottville, New York, which is a ski resort 60 miles south of Buffalo. And uh, Canadians have just contributed tremendously uh, to the Western New York economy and like quality. And, and it's been going on for generations, and it's something, I guess, like so many other things, Congressman, in the pandemic, uh, we, we kind of took it for granted, maybe, until it got taken away from us. Without question. Uh, 2019, uh, 10.5 million people crossed uh, the uh, Buffalo-Niagara Falls uh, border crossings uh, in 2020 during the pandemic. That went down to about 1.7 million, which is a loss of nearly 9 million people. So, Clearly, on both sides of the border, Western New York, Southern Ontario, uh, we were profoundly impacted, and negatively so, by uh, the extended closing of the border. I, I know a couple of weeks ago we had uh, Mayor Jim Diodati from Niagara Falls, Ontario, on the program, and I've known <laughs> the mayor for quite some time, and, and, and I know you've talked with the mayor, too, and he sure. was very, very elated, actually, that this was going to open again because of the impact he's had. But as we mentioned during that discussion, uh, the the economic impact is far reaching. It wasn't just through Buffalo and to Niagara Falls. It's it, all the way to Toronto. I know we talked to the Toronto Board of Trade too, and they were concerned about this uh, because Americans come to, over, to, over to Toronto. They go to downtown Toronto. They go to shows. They do go to Blue Jays games, whatever the case might be. And uh, it's it's important if we talk about economic recovery uh, to have that border open for the land traffic that we've talked about. And I guess the question a lot of us are asking, and, and I know that you've been asking it too, Congressman, what took the Biden administration so long to finally come to this point? I wish I had a good answer for you, and I don't. And that was, you know, it compounded the frustration. And I expressed frustration not only, you know, that was, was I frustrated, but for, for my people and uh, the people of southern Ontario. There was no good reason this border between the United States and Canada won should have opened at the same time. Uh, and secondly, it should have been much earlier. All of us have been told to follow the science, to follow the facts, to follow the data. 
And when you did, it pointed to one clear conclusion, and that is if you are fully vaccinated, you have strong protection against getting uh, seriously ill, hospitalized, or uh, some lethal outcome uh, because you're fully vaccinated. So whether it's, you know, 36% of the population that's fully vaccinated, as is the case in Mexico, or in Canada, which is upwards of 76% fully vaccinated, those who are fully vaccinated should be able to, should have been able to many months ago uh, across the border, and they weren't. And there was no good reason coming from uh, the Biden administration, which was very, very frustrating. And, you know, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the United States is the world's largest public health agency. And their guidance was very clear. And it said that if you are fully vaccinated as an individual, that you can return to pre-pandemic activity. And that for us, as you know, between the United States and Canada, Western New York and Southern Ontario means being able to cross the border on a regular basis without all of these uh, conditions. And there's conditions that still exist, which I'm concerned will discourage uh, Canadians, uh, Southern, uh, Southern Ontario residents to come into Buffalo and Western New York because upon their return to Canada, they have to be tested, which I think is redundant. Well, and, and let's talk about that, because I, I know that the, the Deputy Prime Minister was asked about that uh, just the other day, and, and her response was rather cryptic. She just said, the law is the law. Well, they made the law, so they can change it. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, before the vaccine program rolled out, Congressman, I'm I, I bang on, I'm with that. Okay, let's close everything down. Let's, let's try to control the virus, flatten the curve. We all know those phrases that we used. But with the vaccination program, and, and I think we're not naive here. We know that, you know, even with the double vaccination, proof of vaccination, you're not bulletproof. We get that. Uh, yeah. But you've diminished the chances of, it, first of all, acquiring it. And even if you do, uh, it's probably not going to have the, as dramatic an impact on you as, as it might if you had not been vaccinated. So we all, those are the realities. As you said, we're following the science on this. And it, 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 I, I, I'm still trying to get some understanding on our side of the border why the Canadian government is still insisting on this, especially because the, co the cost of the, the test itself, it's not just a matter of, you know, I, I don't want to have the test done. It's, it's $200 out of your pockets. In other words, if I want to go over to the anchor bar, uh, it's going to cost me 200 bucks <laughs> to get back. And, and it's just, you know, over and above, you know, what I'm going to get for wings. It's just, it's just not right. <laughs> no, it isn't. And, and there's no uncertainty relative to the scheduling of a test. And look, I've had the test. I presume that uh, many, many Canadians obviously have had the test. It's not pleasant. It's not something that you look forward to, but it is unnecessary if you are fully vaccinated. I think the, the, the big story that's been missed here, this messenger RNA is a remarkable uh, biomedical achievement. And it's basically the genetic material that tells a cell uh, to make a protein, which is the active ingredient in the, vac in the vaccine. And, uh, you know, when, when researchers originally went into this thing, they were hoping to achieve uh, uh, an effective rate, efficacy rate of maybe 60%. These are 85, 90, 95% effective. And that's, you know, that needs to be recognized. It needs to be embraced. It needs to be celebrated. And that's why people that, you know, even when you take into account the Delta variant, uh, people still have very strong protection against getting seriously uh, sick and uh, being hospitalized and, and, and dying from COVID. 
Uh, we are going to have COVID for a long time, probably the rest of our lives. It will not be eradicated. What we have to do is learn to, to, to manage it uh, in the best way possible and just do smart things on behalf of your family and, and yourself. Get vaccinated and in certain circumstances wear a mask. And the only time you should have to be tested is if you are in contact with somebody who tested positive for COVID-19, then it makes sense. But this is just another barrier uh, to uh, moving between the United States and Canada. We are all economic actors. When we're confident, we move. When we're not, we don't. And I'm just concerned that you know the United States border is opening on November 8th. It's about time. It should have been much earlier. I am sorry about that. Um, but now that our Canadian friends can come into the United States and have to be tested, it's just an unfair intrusion into a 19-month ordeal that uh, people had to endure. And most people that can now travel did the right thing on behalf of themselves and their families and therefore should be able to travel um, and just taking the necessary precautions to keep themselves and their families safe. Congressman, are there any restrictions for Americans coming over to the Canadian side? Do they, do they have to be tested upon their return? Uh, Canadians, no. Uh, no if Americans right. come over to Canada and spend some time here, do they have to be tested when they go back home? No, not upon return. I, I went up to Niagara-on-the-Lake, which is one of the most beautiful places in all of North America, a couple of weeks ago, and, you know, we had to be tested uh, upon entering Canada but when we came back, we did not have to be tested. And again, you know, we had to provide verification uh, that we were fully vaccinated. And that in and of itself is, is an additional step, but a, a reasonable and logical step. Uh, the testing requirement is, is redundant and doesn't make any sense unless, you know, you have been exposed uh, to somebody who tested positive for COVID-19. How are things going on that side? I mean, we've, we've talked about our recovery and, you know, we want to get back on our feet economically here. And, and I know Western New York's in the exact same situation. Uh, with this border closed, that certainly had an impact on this. How are small businesses coping with what's been going on for the last 18 months? Well, I think everybody struggled uh, on both sides of the border. And the recovery has been slow because the border opening has been slow. And, you know, we in Buffalo and Western New York have uh, enjoyed a decade of great uh, economic growth, uh, particularly, you know, as it relates to tourism. And uh, Americans love going to Canada. I mentioned Niagara in the Lake, Niagara Falls, the good mayor of Niagara Falls, Ontario, I've spoken with many, many times. So I just think that everybody is willing to do what they need to do, but only what they need to do and not anymore. I mean, people, I think, have really demonstrated uh, a great respect uh, for the science and for the admonishments that they've received from public health officials on both sides of the border. So, you know, it's been, it's been, it's been slow, and, and, and 18, 19 months is a long, long time. And uh, I think everybody wants to get back to that semblance of, of, of normalcy and so that we can, you know, travel uh, relatively, uh, you know, unencumbered between the United States and Canada. And that's good for uh, the economies of both uh, southern Ontario and western New York. Uh, Ontario is the most uh, populated, fastest growing uh, economy in all of Canada, nearly uh, 40% of the entire population of Canada lives in southern Ontario. That is an economy 
that greatly benefits uh, the Western New York economy. And those in Western New York feel as though we uh, contribute greatly to the Southern Ontario economy. So we are really one community, and that's the Buffalo-Niagara region, and that includes uh, our friends, our neighbors, our business partners uh, in uh, Ontario, generally in Southern Ontario. One of the questions we've been asking our elected representatives, and I know you certainly have uh, from your position in, in Congress as well, is when a government makes a decision, what the Canadian government is doing right now, is please show us the science that, that indicates why this is necessary. Uh, you know, and, and, and we don't get answers to these questions, and that is very frustrating. I think, I, you know, if somebody can present the case and say, well, this is what's happening now, this, we have scientific proof, uh, will actually curtail that. I think most people will say, okay, fine, I don't like it, but I'll comply with that. Because we all did that when the pandemic first started, with masking and social distancing and, and even, sadly, some of the lockdowns. But as time goes on here, I think we're saying, look, it, we're, we, we haven't beaten this thing. Uh, it's not going away, but we, we seem to have it under control right now. We're doing everything we need to do, yet we're still being fenced in. And I think that's causing a great deal of frustration. And, and understandably so. And what the government has is a responsibility to communicate uh, to uh, their citizens in a clear and concise way. That has not happened on our side. Uh, in, in the United States, and that has been a great source of frustration. Uh, the other, you know, source of frustration here has been that the White House uh, was not speaking with one voice. There was conflicting information uh, coming from uh, CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and uh, the, the, the White House, and they finally got it together. But you, know, you think about this for a moment. For the past 19 months, essential travelers have been crossing the border every single day without vaccination, because for most of that, there were no vaccinations. And mm -hmm. even after vaccinations were available, they were essential travelers and therefore could cross the border uh, uh, on a daily basis without vaccination. And then you have citizens in Southern Ontario and in and, and, and Western New York who did the right thing, got vaccinated, uh, got fully vaccinated, and they're sitting there waiting for some direction uh, from, at least on our side, the, the, the U.S. side of the border. Like, okay, for 19 months, there was an announcement every month that the border was going to remain closed to non-essential travelers. Mm -hmm. Well, how about, you know, we're working on this. Uh, we are trying to achieve these metrics. And the opportunity lost here is that had the border opened earlier, that would have served as an incentive those who were, you know, vaccine skeptical to get vaccinated because that's the price, uh, the ticket to being able to cross the border. That opportunity was lost. And look, it may have only uh, made a difference of, you know, a couple of percentage points, but it's a difference nonetheless in the right direction. So I think, you know, look, lessons learned. Uh, the good thing is the border is going to open. We're going to continue to work on a binational uh, basis uh, to get that uh, that uh, testing uh, mandate uh, eliminated for uh, Canadian citizens re-entering Canada because, uh, again, my concern is we will not realize the full benefit, and they will not realize, uh, both countries, the full benefit of a border opening without the removal of that restriction.
Well, and I know that Mayor Diodati talked to us about that in Niagara Falls last week when we had the conversation too. Uh, you know, the, the border itself is not going to solve the problem, opening the border. It's, it's easing the restrictions so people feel comfortable because as, as you've experienced, uh, Congressman, most of the traffic across uh, the, the Peace Bridge or, or the Rainbow Bridge or wherever it's going to be is casual traffic. It's going over there, you know, you want to have dinner at Salvatore's, you want to go to a Sabres game, especially this year, the way they're playing. Uh, but you yeah. don't want to, hey, okay, I got to wait an hour and a half after the game when I get to the border for another test, and, and I got to pay for that test too. It, it's going to be a problem, and it's going to cause a lot of people to think maybe it's not worth it. And and you yeah. can't have that at this stage. You know, we don't want to be carefree and frivolous and simply say, okay, we don't need to worry about this. I think we're all cautious right now, uh, but we can't be overly cautious because there's an econ- economic price to pay for that too, isn't there? Yeah, there is. There's an economic price. There's a life quality price. There's a an emotional public health uh, a price. And, you know, as I said before, we're all economic actors. We're confident we move and we're not. We don't. And what we need at the border crossings is reliable, predictable access to and from Canada and uh, from Canada to the United States because people have already adjusted their economic behavior to avoid the bridge because for 19 months they couldn't use it. We don't want that. That's not good for Canada. That's not good for the United States. And I think, you know, even pre-pandemic, there were two restrictions. So, you know, you're, you're, you're contemplating a trip to Niagara-on-the-Lake from Buffalo. Then you have to think to yourself, okay, if I go at, uh, at, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I may experience a one-hour wait. If I go at 6 o'clock in the morning, it may be 15 minutes. And some may just figure, you know, why bother? And we don't need that. Our economies are interdependent. We are trading partners. We are friends. Each side of the border has something to offer the other. And we should try to make the U.S.-Canadian border as seamless as possible through technology, through uh, changes relative to infrastructure. Uh, but that's, that's essential. You know, 15 to 25 percent of the season ticket holders of the NFL Buffalo Bills and NHL Buffalo Sabres are citizens of mostly Southern Ontario. Uh, our airport, uh, our ability in Buffalo, the Buffalo Niagara International Airport, to attract low-cost carriers like Southwest and JetBlue is dependent on 30% of the customer base is from Ontario. And you, you, you run that through both economies and it it, 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 it it leaves you to one clear, compelling conclusion, and that is we need each other. So let's make it less arduous for both during a pandemic, but post-pandemic as well. Let's make it less arduous. And you can do it, and you can do it safely and successfully and responsibly. And it's not ideological. It's commonsensical. And that would accrue to the benefit of both uh, the country of Canada and uh, and the country of the United States. Well, November 8th is a good first step. But as you mentioned, there's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, Congressman, thank you so much for, for your efforts uh, so far. I know you're not giving up the fight, and we're certainly going to continue to talk about it at this uh, end as well. So uh, hopefully this is the first of a number of conversations. Thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Happy to be with you. Thank you so much. Take care. Congressman Brian Higgins, representative of the 26th District of uh, New York. And by the way, he is a Democrat working with the Biden administration, but uh, frustrated by the, well, the movement or lack of movement, I guess, on this issue. 
Uh, and now we have to start focusing on the Canadian government and some of the uh, the rules and regulations that they're putting in place. So there is still work to be done. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.